Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. So, I negotiated with him to raise my allowance so I could take the public bus and graduate my kindergarten class. Were you taking the public bus by yourself yes. at five years old? Yes. Because you wanted to fin- finish kindergarten with your class? Yes. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> the interesting thing is I said a lot about my parents. Mm. My parents trusted me. That little negotiation was just the beginning. A little more than 40 years ago, there was a live event that changed television forever. Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier boxing match, the Thrilla in Manila. But the men in the ring weren't the only ones with big career stakes on the line. A 30-year-old entrepreneur named Kay Koplovitz had waited about a decade for this moment. She was the driving force behind making the fight the first live satellite broadcast. It changed the cable industry forever and laid the groundwork for her to become the first woman to lead a television network, one she launched two years later, USA Network. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe. Kay Koplovitz today is a venture capital investor, a board member, and an advocate for women in business. I got some time with her on a busy day at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square to talk about her journey and lessons for the rest of us who maybe in our jobs, maybe with some new venture, are trying to do what's never been done. Here's Kay Koplovitz. Well, I was a college student when I first met uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who was the uh, really the person that brought geosynchronous, uh, uh, geosynchronous orbiting satellites really to light for people. Mm-hmm. And you know, he was so positive, and this was back in the 60s, he was so positive about their power, and we didn't have this communication on a global scale at all. So that's how it all started. The idea started, we could use satellites to communicate with people. Of course, we didn't have the receiving dishes to receive the signal uh, yet uh, around the, in the United States, and really took to the mid-70s to really get that established. So that was really the impetus to really get into satellite-delivered programming, and we did it on cable. And you were a communications major, right? I wrote, yeah, I wrote my master's thesis on, on satellite technology applied to communications. Yes, I, I'm a science major and a communications major. So a double major. Yeah. Okay, so that makes more, because today's communications majors aren't necessarily looking at Satellite technology and thinking. <laughs> or any technology is something that the, the technology actually motivated me into this. I had worked as a television producer going through college. It was one of my jobs. So I understood television. But my motivation was really satellite technology and being able to transmit the signal on a really broad basis. Did you understand business at that stage? Not the way I did eventually learn it when I went out to work. Uh, I don't think I really understood. I, I knew advertising was a, you know, the business model for television, but I hadn't thought about any other model at that time. Uh, no one was thinking about it. And when I started uh, 
Madison Square Garden Sports, which became USA Network, uh, there, we had to reverse the model. We had to have the cable operators pay us for the programming rather than the television model, which was television networks paid the television stations mm -hmm. to carry their program. We didn't have the distribution, so we weren't going to get the advertising revenue. And I think probably in the first three to four years, more than 90% of our revenue was from the licensing fee from the cable operator. Um, what was your motivation? Because, uh, unless you're a huge sports fan and just decided that the world needed sport, like, th th there must have been something that said inside of you that the world needed this. What, what was it? No, I, I don't know that the world needed it, but I knew they would like it. I mean, think about it this way. It didn't take a big research report to tell you that movies and sports are the two biggest things uh, that people like to watch. There were some movie channels out there, including HBO, that were distributing some of their you know, movies, but they were sending them around on tapes. They needed the satellite, too, because they didn't have an efficient distribution, and it was mostly local. Uh, you know, it wasn't really being nationally distributed on a big scale to cable systems that were more rural at the time. And in order to connect those dots around the country, satellite was really needed because you needed to get ubiquitous distribution without going through the telephone companies that did, did or did not serve those areas. And so it was, it, to me, the motivation was really, I, I felt sports would be it. People would love to have sports. We only had them on the weekends. And I thought, well, why only sports on the weekends? It was wide world of sports, Major League Baseball, an NFL game. You know, it was very contained, actually. And I think the idea was, well, men are home on the weekends, that's when we should have sports. <laughs> you know, but, but, uh, but sports were played every day and every right. night. And I thought, well, this would be a good idea. Let's get sports on every night of the week. Why not? We should have them. They're, the games are being played. Were you independently wealthy? How did you... <laughs> How, how did you? <laughs> that is a big joke. <laughs> no, you're talking to someone that worked three jobs that were simultaneously to work her way through college. So I, I wouldn't say that's the lifestyle of someone who's independently Right, well, so how yeah. did you stand well, up? Well, I worked the... in the industry. I, I, I worked in the industry and I got to know people in the industry. And the person, the company that put up the money was the cable company that I had worked with previously, UA Columbia. Mm -hmm. And Bob Rosencrantz, who was the president. Uh, understood the value of bringing sports because he had he had cable systems distributed throughout the country, and he wanted to get some original programming to them. That's what sports really did for the cable operator: bring in original programming that they couldn't get someplace else. So people would sign up for cable in order to get uh, motivated by getting sports and in some cases, movie packages that were on a pay basis. They weren't on an advertiser basis, they were on a pay basis. And you know, to really grow the cable industry, that was, that was the motivation of the cable operator to sign up. And uh, I knew they would. So you're a young woman in the 70s, mm -hmm. looking to stand up a sports network, mm -hmm. using a technology that had never been used for that before, right. and you don't have your own money on the line. How on earth were you able to do that? Well, I was very confident that it would work. I, I, I really, I mean, I, we had a good business plan. Right. I knew the cable operators would want the programming. I you know, got Madison Square Garden Sports, 125 events. How? Uh, license fee with Madison Square Garden. Joe Cohen was running the garden then. But how Joe did you, thought it would be a great idea. How did you get that meeting? Well, I knew him from the cable industry Okay. Uh, because uh, Madison Square Garden was distributed in this region uh -huh. at that point in time. 
and I worked for a cable company, UA Columbia, that was licensing it mm-hmm. for their cable systems. So it wasn't a you know giant leap to say, well, we could take this national. And we have to recognize that Madison Square Garden was it. That was the big arena. You know, it still is a big arena mm-hmm. uh, in in sports today. Um, and. So it wasn't a you know, great leap of faith to think other people would want to see sporting events from Madison Square Garden, because that was playing the big time. Sure. And, uh, and from there, I just wanted to get all the major league sports. So I went and, you know, went to negotiate with Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL. Why not have the best available? And so that was really what I did. And hey, you get the best. You go for the best. You don't get them if you don't go for them. Yeah, I mean, it sounds great. <laughs> Where did you get the confidence? Where was your training ground uh, in the industry, in building your network, mm-hmm. in figuring out how to make these moves? Yeah, uh, you know, I think it was from when I was a kid. My parents wanted us to be independent. They uh, allowed us to make decisions very early in life, and then we had to live with those decisions. There's a story about getting on the school bus, it's, or getting on the bus. It wasn't uh, even a school bus. Yeah, it wasn't even a school bus. It was a, <laughs> yeah, when I was five years old, I had to negotiate with my father to, uh, to allow me to go on the public bus to the next town to continue with my kindergarten. After we moved, I wanted to graduate with my kindergarten class, and, uh, and uh, I was determined to do that. And I figured out, well, if he raised my allowance, I could take the bus. And so I... <laughs> So, I negotiated with him to raise my allowance so I could take the public bus and graduate my kindergarten class. Were you taking the public bus by yourself yes. at five years old? Yes. Because you wanted to fin- finish kindergarten with your class? Yes. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> the interesting thing is I said a lot about my parents. Hmm. My parents trusted me. You know, and look, maybe a little different times than it is today, right? Uh, it was, this was by the 50, early 50s, whatever. And Still I, today, know, you could give your five-year-old an iPhone and at least know where she is yeah, and make yeah, sure yeah, the yeah. bus got to school. <laughs> yeah, then yeah, yeah. you just kind of had to... They, uh, I don't think they were really worried about it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what town was this? This was in uh, from South Milwaukee to Cudahy, and it's a suburb of uh, Milwaukee. They're suburbs of Milwaukee. I lived in, in the greater Milwaukee area. And, you know, really... Um, I, I really think that said a lot. I mean, it was my first successful negotiation <laughs> that way at five. But I, I, I think you just get confidence um, as you go along and make a lot of decisions uh, as a child. And, and, and my parents wanted us to do that. So I feel that really I had a good environment for learning how to take responsibility for my own decisions. And, and I think that gave me a lot of confidence. Uh, as a young person, as a student, what other leadership moments or entrepreneurial moments come to mind? Well, I mean, going uh, before college and in high school and in junior high, I was always a leader of a lot of things in school. I mean, I was a publisher of the fifth grade newspaper and I had to make enough money for the class trip. And, you know, I mean, I was, I would compete in anything, in any kind of sport, anything that you could win money or anything I would compete in, you know, so I I just loved that. Um, And I think I just sort of did that along. And then in college, I wouldn't say it was so much leadership. It was really, for me, college was, yeah, I loved it. It was great. I loved the courses. I loved being at the University of Wisconsin. But I did work uh, several jobs simultaneously to pay my way through school. So, you know, uh, I learned a lot by doing that. I mean, I really, I always knew the value of dollar. Mm. I had to. Yeah. How did it come about that a certain fight involving Muhammad Ali yeah turned into a key moment for you? Well, it is the moment 
the night that changed the course of television history. And so it was not just for me, but for a real industry. And that was uh, on uh, September 30th, 1975, the live event between Muhammad Ali and Joe Fraser. And uh, it was a third matchup. It was, it still is viewed as the most exciting heavyweight boxing match of all time. The thrill in so, Manila. The thrill in Manila. And it was exciting. I mean, everybody was up for it. And it was a spectacular fight. We brought it live via satellite from Manila to Vero Beach, Florida. Demonstrated for the industry the value of having live satellite coverage brought to the cable systems. And that was really the night that permission was given, in a sense, for the industry to use satellites. And Tell that, me, that, that was really my thesis in college, and then when I wrote my master's thesis about it, it was like Bob Rosencrantz was his system, and he said to me that night, Kay, your dream comes true. How did that come about, and how far out did you see that date coming where you said, okay, here's our chance. This is going to be huge. Yeah, yeah you, you can't predict exactly when it's going to happen, when it's in regulation and all that sort of stuff. So I, I just was totally confident that it would it would actually come to pass. It was needed. It became needed almost in the industry uh, that, you know, that the transfer of technology really came into the industry. So I didn't know it was going to take seven years since I wrote my master's thesis. I didn't think it would take that long, hmm. but I never gave up the dream. What were you doing we in that intervening seven years? Because that's yeah, kind of a long time. I worked at the Communications Satellite Corporation, uh -huh. um, and I uh, worked uh, in television as a freelancer, and then I worked in the cable industry getting franchises, going from town to town, uh, permitting, you know, promoting cable at different uh, towns and cities around New Jersey, New York, uh, throughout Texas, various places throughout the country, really get the licenses to build out the cable system. So that really taught me a lot about the cable systems and how they operated. So and it gave me the opportunity to meet the people who headed these different cable systems, too. So I actually knew a lot of people in the industry. When the moment came, I actually knew a lot of people in the industry. Mm. But you had to work. I mean, it was yeah, seven years of working hard to achieve it, and, uh, and it worked out for me. Well, this is Fort Knox Live. I am here with Kay Koplovitz yeah. at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. She's a co-founder of the USA Network, uh, Sci-Fi, uh, Springboard Enterprises, and Springboard Growth Capital, which we will get into. Um, there's a lot going on in media right now. Mm -hmm. Mergers, acquisitions, Netflix, Hulu, uh, everybody now seems to be starting an over-the-top channel. At the same time, CBS uh, is, is in this weird dance with Viacom, its kissing cousin. What advice would you give CBS CEO Les Moonves right now? I'm not sure Les needs my advice, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I understand why he's making the challenge, uh, because uh, Viacom has performed poorly compared to CBS. And those who aren't following uh, as closely, basically the parent, controlling parent of CBS is trying to make CBS acquire Viacom under terms that the C CBS CEO doesn't particularly seem to like the two at this Yeah, the two stage. companies have different boards, yeah. uh, but the controlling vote is controlled by National Amusement. Uh -huh. So they really control the vote on both boards as they stand right now. So the challenge with CBS is making is to uh, disperse ownership 
uh, at CBS to the other shareholders so that it, National Amusements does not, uh, Sherry Redstone, Redstone, uh, does yeah. not have controlling vote. And so they're trying to take the controlling vote away from the parent company. And apparently there's something, I only know what I've read, but apparently there's something um, in their agreements uh, that allows them to do something like that. And I'm sure that National Amusements will be challenging that in court. So I think that will extend this uh, process of whether or not they will be merged again. They were merged. They were under the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they were separated a number of years ago. Now National Amusements wants to put them back together. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I think it's... Uh, it's a bold move on CBS's part uh, to, to do that, to really challenge the parent. Uh, Compare this era that we're in now of broadband, soon to be 5G, and the streaming capabilities, the different types of programming. Um, compare that technological shift mm -hmm. that we're undergoing to the satellite TV era. If you were writing a, a thesis in college today, would you be writing about that? And what would you see the possibilities as being? Well, we're in a chaotic period. And I think that this, there's always great opportunities when you have chaos. There's less opportunity when you have static. Um, and so people who have new ideas um, of what they want to produce, what they want to distribute, or how they want to distribute it, if they want to be on mobile, if they want to you know, start their own newsletter, turn it into uh, you know, uh, a, a a video podcast or anything else, uh, they can do it today. Um, nobody, there's a barrier to entry is almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. It's the marketing of it that really is difficult to really rise above all the cacophony out there. So I, I, I think that, you know, I would still be interested in the new because I've always been intrigued by what isn't there. Uh, but I, so I think I would actually be on that side because it's the huge media companies today are largely challenged. They're wonderful businesses. They have great businesses still. Lots of cash flow. Um, you know, it's a very attractive business. Uh, established media companies, but they're struggling with uh, you know the new upstarts, whether it's Netflix or Hulu, over the top. You don't need the kind of access to the market that they once provided and provided the. Yeah, they were the gateway to it. Mm -hmm. Now with ubiquitous distribution of broadband, almost, which cable operators and other distributors still control, they, you yeah. still have to get into the home somehow. Someday when 5G is ubiquitous, then you won't need that. <laughs> so everything changes. You have to keep up. I mean, technology is always changing. Tell me about the transition from having a Madison Square Garden network to USA and what it became. Did you always envision a, a really diverse sl slate of, of programming? Were you reacting to what you sensed as consumer demand? And how did you sense consumer demand mm. before Twitter? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, yeah. there was a day when we programmed and people watched. <laughs> and today, the, uh, you know, the, the consumer is really pretty much in charge. So it's, the, the, the leverage has shifted, okay? Uh, but you, you did understand what worked. You did have ratings uh, as, you know, you had them. They're not as, they weren't as instantaneous. They were overnight. But you didn't have the kind of data behind it that you have today. 
And so, uh, you know, you, you had to put your programming out there and test it and see if it worked and work on it. And usually it took work through the first season of a series or second season of a series to really get that real grip on the audience. And then you develop the characters. And that's really how it always was done. And, you know, honestly, I think today is almost like a golden era of writing. The writing today in the series, whether they're over the top or pay or basic or broadcast television, things that people are watching today, I think they have a choice of some of the best writing we've ever seen. And I think that's great. There's more diversity um, in the people who are writing. Um, they're writing for different kinds of audiences, and there's a lot more audience out there to split up among the various, you know, programmers. So I, I, you know, it's, I think it's an exciting time, although I would say the marketing is harder. Uh, than it used to be because there's so much out there. I want to ask you to pick a favorite channel, mm -hmm. but tell me who you think is pushing boundaries in the most interesting ways network-wise. Well, it, it is kind of interesting. I mean, I, I think the broadcast networks have their challenge. They have some great series on uh, today, but I think you'd have to say that Netflix is pushing the boundaries the most. I mean, they're really, they're outspending their, but the, you can outspend, but they're successful doing it. Mm. And, you know, we'll see, because now they're really, really investing tremendous amount of money in their programming. But very early on when they went in all this original programming, they were successful at the start. And that was amazing to me. I was really pretty amazed with that. Mm. But, you know, there's, there, there are mobile units that are out there. There are you know, a lot of different ways of distributing programming. So I think we'll see things that are quite different uh, for different audiences coming along. This is part of what we do in, in uh, Springboard with technology because our tech sector of our over 700 companies that we've brought to market in technology innovation mm -hmm. with women entrepreneurs, two-thirds of them are in technology and they're in different segments of technology. So media tech is one of them. And what is changing in MediaTek? The AR and the VR is really coming into the marketplace uh, today, and we're going to see more of that kind of innovation uh, in programming uh, as well. So you're seeing these types of technologies also come in. Springboard uh, started in 2000, mm -hmm. the nonprofit mm -hmm. where you are helping to accelerate uh, women entrepreneurs, companies that have a woman entrepreneur involved. What was your real push to do that at that time? Well, as I was leaving USA Network at the end of nine days, uh, President Clinton asked me to chair the National Women's Business Council, and it was to report to Congress on the progress of women-led companies. But to me, that wasn't really moving the ball forward. I mm -hmm. wanted to find out what was going to move the ball forward for women, and I went out and did some research, and I said, it, we have to get them into equity capital so they can really get the capital to grow these, because you can have a great idea, but as you were pointing out earlier, where's the capital um, uh -huh. coming from? And we didn't, when I started USA, there was no capital around for any, there was nothing. Yet banks didn't even want to, you know, lend money to cash flow businesses at that time because they didn't have the assets to, you know, put it into the pot. Right. So uh, very different time. But so that's what really motivated me is to really say, hey, where are the women? I looked around and I didn't see any women getting $104 billion of venture capital in 1999, and I couldn't find the women. And I thought, well, we got to do something about this. So that was kind of my 
driving force to see if I could find the women. Who didn't, could we find women that were building technology and life science companies that needed equity capital? Could we find them and could we get them into the market? So that's what really motivated us to start all this, because I didn't want it to go on and on and more decades of women lagging behind and trying to build businesses with uh, you know, very little capital. We need to be competitive. 20 years later, yeah. on balance, mm -hmm. when you look at where we are, do you say, look how far we've come, or why haven't we come further? I look at uh, like how far we've come because we concentrate on uh, the entrepreneurs that are at the top of the pyramid, mm -hmm. the people that are building scalable and sustainable businesses, women transforming industries. So I'm not there for every woman. Mm -hmm. I can't, it, it's too big can't boil the ocean. We chose to focus on women entrepreneurs who are really scaling, who can scale businesses. So it's people like uh, Linda Hall, Minute Clinic, uh, which was bought by CVS, and now CVS is very early in urgent care. Someone who actually innovated urgent care in the business back in 2002. Yeah, people like Robin Chase with Zipcar, people like Helen Greiner with iRobot. Uh, we have wonderful people doing things today that are going to really transform industries. Aya Cahill with the GNS, who's doing uh, machine learning applied to precision medicine, uh, which are really, it's going to really change the treatment that individuals get uh, that are really tailored for them. And people have been trying to do this for almost 20 years. But now we really have the data and the tools and the scientific knowledge in order to create these reverse engineering models and figure out what is really going to affect you as an individual for your treatment. That's a breakthrough. And we've, we've got wonderful companies out there. I've got to tell you, it's really exciting to see these women be successful. I do invest, but I'm really trying to help a whole cohort of women around the globe. We are on a global basis transforming you know, businesses with women as leaders. And, and so I find it very exciting. I, I, I started off playing with all the boys, and now I'm playing with all the girls. It's, it's, it's really kind of fun uh, to really see women get their seat at the table, get the, the capital that they need, and be successful. These days there are more investors who are trying to target specific groups who they see being underserved. Uh, Arlen Hamilton at, at Backstage Capital comes to mind. What advice do you give to folks who are maybe trying to put together capital coalitions of people to be able to do that? Um, how do you target an underserved group without opening up blind spots and perhaps uh, taking on too much risk? Well, I, I think you, what we learned from the very beginning is we would have to create the entire ecosystem around these entrepreneurs. And what do I mean by that? Mm. It's not just the entrepreneurs, it's not just our training to teach them how to speak investor speak, because it's a different language, right. actually. And you know, they're not, they like your product or your company or they've gotta like you and they gotta believe that you have vision and that you can drive uh, the transformation that you need. But at the end of the day, you've gotta be able to speak the language that they want, which is how much money do you need, what are you going to do with it? How much can I make if I put money into your company? And so forth. So they got to change the way they pitch their company. So we teach that as well as help them with filling in uh, some of the things like talent or uh, access 
you have to create this ecosystem, lawyers, accountants, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, corporate business opportunities for them. That's the ecosystem. So anyone that hasn't been in the, you know, sort of on the landscape yet, has to be able to access this entire ecosystem. That's what we provide at Springboard. We have over 5,000 experts in wow. different fields of technology, uh, you know, all the way from fintech to cybersecurity to media tech to fashion tech to all these different technologies, biotech, devices, diagnostics, all different stages of growth so that we can connect these entrepreneurs with the people they need to reach when they need to reach them. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of high touch. We've got to be knowledgeable about these experts, what they can supply, the entrepreneurs and what they are needing at that point in time. And for an entrepreneur, having that access, it's priceless because they could possibly never find the right person on their own. When you look at today's entrepreneurs and the skills needed to survive and thrive in this environment, if, if it's a, a, a toolbox yeah. full of skills, are there a couple of particular tools that you can point to at this point in time that you think are particularly crucial to develop and to have? I can't. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, we look for an entrepreneur with vision in a big market because we're looking to scale companies. We want them to be able to attract the right talent. You've got to be able to attract the A-team talent. Uh, you've got to have execution skills. We look for those sorts of things. But I'll tell you the most important thing we look for, agility. 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 And why? Because entrepreneurs, and at today's speed of change, entrepreneurs have to learn and adapt at, you know, at speed. And they really have to be able to do that over and over again. You can make mistakes. I mean, you can go too fast, perhaps, and make mistakes. But you have to be able to learn, take advice, learn from others, be knowledgeable about the market, learn what's going on, adapt it to what you're doing quickly. Because the market will leave you behind if you don't. How much of agility, the way you're talking about it, is reaction time, mm -hmm. being able to see a problem or data that's running counter to your vision and shift, and how much of it is just being able to run faster in the same direction you have been running? Well, that's a good question, and I don't know if I really have the answer for you, but I would say that when we're talking about agility, it's more on the learning side of it. You, if you run blindly, uh, I think you'll run into traps. Uh, too many traps, you, you know, because you have to go for what I call white space. So you'll, every entrepreneur finds a lot of barriers along the way. You get a lot of no's, and you've got to be able to maneuver through them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that that's one characteristic that you have to have. But along the way, you've got to be learning from everybody, even from your competitors. You've got to be learning all the time and understanding. You don't have to do what they do. You don't have to even take all the advice people give you. But you have to weigh it and say, does this apply to my company? Does this apply to me? How can I do this better? You have to keep, every day you have to ask yourself those questions. Um, as we begin to wrap up, I'm wondering what you did mm -hmm. as an employee in those seven years between uh, your thesis and the thriller in Manila that proved out your vision to prepare to be a successful entrepreneur? Because I think a lot of people fall into that space. Not everybody drops out of college and, and you know, becomes Mark Zuckerberg or yeah. Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or any of those And actually, we don't people. look like any of them. 
<laughs> you and I do not. <laughs> yes, we don't. <laughs> yes. So how do you position yourself as an employee or perhaps as a long-term student in a way that you're ready to make that entrepreneurial leap when the opportunity arises? I think I've always been a risk taker, um, and I think that's part of it for me. But, but you were building a network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was building. That was a risk when I did it, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no, but I mean you were yeah. building an interpersonal network oh, yeah. that allowed you to take the risk well, later. So I, is that I, intentional? I or? Uh, yes, uh, it was. Uh, I, uh, you know, I loved, out of college, when I went to work for the Communications Satellite Corporation, I loved it because it was a subject that I had chosen. And I learned a lot and learned, you know, met a lot of people. But I observed things that I would not do. And what did I observe? I observed that people uh, were backbiting internally, jockeying for jobs, trying to take other people's, you know, place. And I said to myself, hmm, very interesting. When I start a company, I'm not going to do that. It's not going to be, I'm not going to waste my time or the company's time or my resources having people do that. They can be on the team. If they're, and they've got to contribute to the team and the business. And if they do that well, they'll be well compensated. But if they don't want to be that way, other people have different philosophies, you know. Mm. Other people feel like they should pit everybody against each other and then those, you know, the survival of the fittest. I always had the opposite. I felt like choose people with different backgrounds, every one of them hopefully stronger in what they did than I could possibly do. Mm. Get the strongest team around me, make it a team and have them work together they could disagree, put your disagreement on the table. Hey, I think this, I think this, that's fine. That's good. But don't do it in a way that's just gonna be counterproductive to advancing, because that's not gonna help us be successful. And I, so I learned, you asked me, what did I learn? That's what I learned. That's one of the things I learned. The other thing I you know, really learned is that creating your network is really important. Your contact network with people in the business before you need something from them, hmm. before you want to sell them something. You know, really develop that kind of personal relationship. And uh, people may feel challenged by that today because so much is done electronically. Right. But it's still necessary to have personal relationships to really be successful in business, to really understand how other people think. And can't do it all by just sending text messages and emails to people. So that means actually shaking people's hands, actually sitting down and still having important. lunch with them. It's still important to really, I, I think, advance your business, to really understand it, and to really have the people that you, you can go to and that you can trust uh, along the way as you're building it. I think it's really still very important. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been the Fort Knox Podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note of your own. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews. You can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter and search for John Fort and follow me. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Cannonball! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.